Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to Beyond Therapy. Today, we're talking about a really interesting set of tools that I think a lot of counselors and therapists are using without actually realizing it, uh, which can all be bundled together under this idea of clinical intuition. I want you all to get really ready, really brace yourself, because we're going to have a super nerdy, space and time, great beyond kind of conversation today. And who better to have this conversation with than sort of the the guru of clinical intuition, which is uh, Dr. Margaret Arndt Cadigan. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm so excited. So we met (laughs) via a study you were doing. I don't know how much you can talk about it as it's still in process, but maybe just say a, a little bit about what that work is like. Um, sure. And I actually, that study is still open, so I can put a plug in there. If anybody wants to participate, I'm still taking participants. Um, the study is on clients' anomalous experiences. And anomalous experiences are things like the things we think about when we think about ESP, the things we think about when we think about mediums, having conversations with the spirits of deceased loved ones or other entities, things like astral projection, all of those paranormal, psi-related kinds of experiences. And it's traditionally, they have been called psychotic-like experiences in psychiatry. And what research has really uncovered is that a lot of people have these experiences who are healthy people. Now, the experience may cause some consternation, may cause some difficulty. The chief one being, oh, my God, am I crazy? People can't take these experiences to people they know, often to clerics or to family because they're afraid of the stigma. They come to a therapist and unfortunately sometimes receive even more stigma. So I'm talking to therapists who work with clients who have disclosed these experiences who are actually helping them. Um, and, and so the question is, what are we doing? How are we handling this? What is best practice to work with people who have anomalous experiences? Very cool. So I'm interested as we kind of get into clinical into intuition specifically, uh, how some of these anomalous experiences might play into that. Uh, just in reading your book on clinical intu- intuition, uh, you have two or three books on that. Two. two. I okay. have two. I was reading the one on intuition and psychotherapy from research to practice. Um, it just, it covered such a broad range of experiences that can be considered intuition. So yeah, I definitely want to dig into the anomalous, as you mentioned, psi kind of related experiences. Um, so to start out before we get into the nitty gritty of all the definitions, I'm curious just how you got in to this area of research and work. The short answer is I was doing some research on boundary dilemmas and how experienced clinicians resolve boundary dilemmas. Because my my intuition was that they don't do the risk-benefit assessment that we're taught 
that we're supposed to do. And the fact of the matter is most of these boundary dilemmas come up so quickly. Who's got time for a, a risk benefit assessment? And so the question to me was, well, what do you do? And I was really surprised by how many of them say, I use my intuition. Oh, I think I need to learn more about this. That's fascinating. So kind of drawing from boundaries, it also brings to mind from the counselor ed perspective, how we talk about ethics. And just as you mentioned, you know, ethical dilemmas, similarly, when the flow charts are just miles long to, to come to any conclusion. And ultimately, when I'm teaching or supervising, I'm always going to ask someone, how did it feel? Right. So right. that feels so much, not necessarily more valuable, but so much more accessible and practical. <laughs> sure. Sure. Absolutely. There are a few key words and practices that showed up in particularly in your book and also in some of the articles that you referenced that I'm also going to provide in a resource sheet for folks who are listening. Um, you mentioned some terms like transactional analysis, interpersonal psychology, and I think we might all be a little bit familiar with those terms, but can you just identify what those specific practices and modalities are like? Sure. Let me talk about interpersonal therapy first, because this is where I could really geek out. Interpersonal analytic therapy was started in the 1940s by Harry Stack Sullivan. He thought that he was introducing um, a counterpoint to Freud's work, but it ended up getting pulled into psychoanalysis. And, um, and so now interpersonal psychoanalysis is one of the many schools under the aegis of psychoanalytic practice. So in the 1970s, some researchers kind of used some of Sullivan's ideas to create what they thought was a placebo treatment for their outcome studies. We want to test, for instance, CBT against a placebo treatment. So here, do this. Well, they found out that the placebo treatment was actually effective. And so they manualized and codified and highly researched a form of very brief practice that is targeted only to symptoms of mood disorders. Mm. So when we say interpersonal theory, we're talking about two very, very different things. And of course, you know, in analytic thought, intuition they actually use the word telepathy, comes up over and over and over again. Um, a lot of times they like to use fancier words like unconscious communication. But it's, it's a really central aspect of that system of thought. In the interpersonal psychotherapy that is the manualized later edition, there's no room for intuition there. That's, it's not, not a thing. Um, so <laughs> transpersonal analysis was actually, interestingly enough, started by an analyst who was noticing how his own intuition was working. And so he thought, well, let me study intuition. This is a thing that I need to know more about. And in fact, developed his form of therapy, transactional analysis, with the foundation of the notion that intuition is a key part of human mental functioning. Um, and 
just for kind of reference, what he did is he took the notion of, of ego that was so important in Freudian theory. And he said, we actually have three ego states. We have mm. parent, adult, and child, mm -hmm. and that we interact with each other from one of these ego states. And when they work together, that's great. And when they don't work together, we have problems. It sounds a lot like, um, internal family systems in that regard of communicating with sort of multiple aspects of an ego. Yes, that, that is of interest to me. Um, I have been doing a lot of work on sense of self. Um, it's going to be the topic of my next season for my podcast. And in that it, it, we talk about multiple selves and it is interesting that Eric Byrne, the creator of transactional analysis noticed very, very early that we have multiple self states. Yeah. Well, and that maybe that's something we can circle back to because it, it feels like, especially as you're describing the interpersonal piece and the transactional analytic piece and adding internal family systems to that, that you really can't do that work without some understanding and embrace of intuition. Yes. Yes. And this is the point that Byrne makes that we all intuitively know what ego state our conversational partner is bringing us and that intuition is the only way to know the ego state. Although the way that he defines intuition is really, really closely aligned to the definition given by the cognitive psychologist, mm. which it's the implicit processing of tacitly consumed information. Um, he, he really doesn't allow for things that occur on a purely non-physical level. Mm, okay. Let's maybe jump into that because um, in the first chapter of intuition and psychotherapy, I was interested to hear how many different disciplines have taken an interest, including cognitive psychology, business psychology, um, and hearing just how broad a concept this is and how much disagreement there has been even within psychotherapy as to whether intuition exists, if it's relevant and what the formal definition is. So from where you sit right now, based on all of your practice and research, how do you currently define intuition? On a surface level, the notion that it's knowing without knowing how you know. Love that. I think there is no doubt. I've been taking a lot of courses at the Ryan Research Center, which is a center uh, created to uh, research psi phenomena. And intuition is an easier concept for us to embrace than things like precognitive abilities, clairvoyance, those kinds of telepathy. But when we break intuition down, we find the way that it was used among the participants in the intuition research I did was that's what it means. It includes clairvoyance and telepathy and precognition and all of those psi phenomena encapsulated under the topic ESP, extrasensory perception. So, so I might define it as extrasensory perception, and I might define it as knowing how you that knowing that you know without knowing how. I'm curious if if you can share 
knowing that it can include uh, telepathy and clairvoyance and this subtle knowing, um, what are some actual examples of how that may show up in a clinical setting? Well, it can show up in so many different ways. I think one of the more important findings of that research was that people realized they'd been using it without knowing that they were using it because it can slip by so easily. It it can come in so many different forms. It can be of a physiological feeling. It can be tactile. It can be an image in your mind. It can be the snippet of a song or a line from a poem that just suddenly invades. Um, and we're taught that these are distractions and that we need to get rid of them and refocus on the client. And it was amazing to me when I, I started to consider, perhaps this isn't a distraction. Perhaps this is key to what my client's trying to communicate with me. Let me see if I can use this. Um, it, it became really profound to begin to introduce that into the therapeutic dialogue. Of course, we always do so provisionally. We say things like, you know, I, I wonder if this has any relevance to you. I wonder if this helps with the conversation at all. And and we're absolutely ready to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. Um, but you rarely hear no for an answer. Absolutely. It was so validating for me to read through some of those examples because each of the things you just listed, song, lyric, a random image, um, a random, not a thought, but like, just here's, here's a thing I need to say right now. Um, all of those have happened and none of them did I ever consider were intuition. My favorite example, um, has profane language in it. Go for it. Um, we heard wildly on this show. It's welcome. Learning about countertransference, I had a client who was talking to me about his experience with his son. And his son was one of those children who really didn't fit any clear diagnostic category, but fit every diagnostic category. And they'd had used uh, just a million different forms of treatment and none of them were effective. And he was feeling so defeated and overwhelmed and guilty and all of these things. And I suddenly got in my head a memory of a difficult experience that I had gone through with my son. Now, nothing like the client's son's experience, but a difficult experience. There was a time in my life that I would have gone, oh, countertransference, check that, make that go away. That's about me. Don't ever make therapy about me. It's always about the client. This time I decided that I was going to go with it. And I said, you know, I wonder if this has any relevance to you. I told him the appropriate part of the story about my son. He started crying and he said, you know exactly how I feel. And that, that moment of meeting, that shared experience was really profound for him. So profound that when therapy was over, our last terminating session, we were shaking hands and he was about to walk out the door. He said, do you know what the most transformative experience for me was in this whole thing? What was that? When you told me that story about your son. Wow. 
Now, in case you think that was really profound, he went on to say, yeah, I kind of see you as fairly well put together. And I figured if you could be in a situation that fucked up and turn out okay, there was probably <laughs> hope for me. <laughs> Very interesting. Yes. The humanity of the therapist coming through. <laughs> and I think that's, I'm so happy that you bring in countertransference, you know, because I think that is what people encounter as the stuffiness that can be therapy. I feel like ultimately boils down to how we are instructed in inauthenticity. We're trained to not be a whole person in the counseling room. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that all of the research on common factors is saying that it's like, could we please just start having our students read common factors research before they read outcome studies? And before they maybe get into theories, even, you know, yes. is this notion yes. that you have to put yourself in a box and be very rigid in your technique. And then you look at outcomes. But yeah, the co common factors, so critical. As you were sharing your your own experience of intuition and how connecting that that was, it brought to mind sort of how tricky it might be to differentiate intuition from empathy, and also to figure out. I guess when I think about intuition, I have I think of an experience that conveys some sort of truth. Mm -hmm. You know, is this accurate in the therapeutic experience? And I guess if so. Who decides if the intuition is accurate or maybe successful? That's a really good question. And, and I, I hope that I address that in the second book, which is that there are two things that really get in the way of intuition. And one of them is projection. I'm projecting my stuff onto you and calling it my intuition. How do you know if you're projecting or if it's intuition? And that comes down to your own therapy and your own self-awareness process. And you really tracking the patterns. Has this come up before with clients of mine? I never flashed onto the memory of my son and the experience prior to this one day. And so if it's if it's completely new, if it's novel, there's a good chance it's not me. If this is something that I've experienced over and over again, it's me. And, and we teach that to our students in the story. If you're walking down the street and one person looks angry, they're probably angry. If you're walking down the street and everybody looks angry, you're probably angry. <laughs> um, and the same is true with intuition and projection. That's so helpful. The, the aspect of novelty and the separation from your own story in sure. a way, like your own programming maybe, or your own conditioning. Yeah. Do you have any examples of intuition gone awry? Like where there was a genuinely intuitive process happening, but it didn't turn out well, or the, you know, the client was rejecting of it anytime where it's kind of gone south. When the client rejects it, there's two possibilities, which is that it was completely off or it's the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And either way, the reaction is, okay, let it go. Mm -hmm. I mean, either way, we're not going to push it on the client. And, and so you just say, okay, and move on. I wonder if that might be another distinguishing characteristic between projection and intuition would be attachment to the outcome. Oh, that's yes, that's absolutely right. 
That's absolutely right. Attachment and aversion absolutely destroy our intuition. Does everyone have intuition? I like to say it's like singing. Not everybody is born with the same ability, but everybody can improve. Not everybody's going to become a diva, but wherever they are, they can get better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have experienced some divas who have like, they can see things before they happen. And those are the people that I aspire to be. I'm, I'm like minor leagues, I think. It, 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 yours can be trained and it can improve. And we don't know what your ceiling is. So let's Ooh. shoot for Diva. Okay. All right. I'm going to start, start my vocal exercises. So how can someone grow in, in this skill or this aspect of, of self? Um, you know, that that's an interesting question. Monday night, I'm starting a small group of therapists who want to come together on a regular basis to kind of help each other and encourage each other to grow their intuition. I think the first thing we have to do is quiet our inner editor. Mm. Right? Because we get a, a, a sense and we're like, no, no, that can't, that's wrong. Um, And we don't want to write down what we thought because then if it's wrong, it's in black and white. It's wrong in, you know, in capitals. (laughs) So we have to quiet all that and say, give myself permission to be wrong. That's okay. So we start out with some humility and some acceptance of the fact that we're not necessarily a diva on day one and really track our experiences which ones turn out to be right which ones turn out to be wrong it's like learning to ride a bicycle i can't tell you specifically how you need to shift your body to find that balance but in practicing over and over and over again you're going to get a nonverbal feel and so in saying this time i thought this was going to happen and it was wrong And this time I thought this was going to happen and it was right. And this time I thought this was going to happen and it was right. How are those two similar? What did those feel like? How did those feel different from the time that I was wrong? And so in just tracking those experiences, we learn what works and what doesn't work. And we gravitate toward finding better and better balance until we can ride BMX When you say practicing what is going to happen, is that sort of predictive exercise? Is that, is that like the the best way to sort of hone intuition is to just see if you can kind of guess what's going to happen? Well, I, I think what we do is we look in and we say, did I have a bit of a song come to me? Did I just have an image come to me? Write that down. What is that? Now I'm, taking uh, um, some people through some very specific exercises, like let's sit in this circle and with the intention that we're going to share a a group experience and open yourself up to what that feels like. And after we're done with that, let's compare what each of us experienced Mm. and how was that similar and how was that different? Did several people experience a similar thing? Did everybody experience something different? And just begin to play with 
can you feel? I like to use energy kind of symbolism. Um, that's something that I connect to. And so I have people say, can we share energy? What did this other person's energy feel like to you during this exercise? And then the other person can say, well, I was sitting, you know, I felt um, some angry energy. Well, that's interesting because I was sitting with the intention to, um, to give love. So, okay, that, that's interesting. That's not wrong. That's not bad. That's just interesting. And let's keep doing it over and over and over again until we can see where it goes. Wow. I mean, it seems like really epitomizes having to cultivate comfort with uh, uncertainty and ambiguity. I mean, this, I hear this, this group really just sort of takes shape moment to moment. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I know I had a friend said, well, that could be your next book. You can write down, you know, what the group is. And it's like, you can't write down what the group is. The group makes the group. Right. Yeah. You also mentioned in your book that certain life circumstances can help to cultivate clinical intuition. And you highlighted difficult family situations, which yeah. I mean, certainly brings my own experience and plenty of client experiences into mind of, you know, growing up with maybe a volatile parent, an alcoholic parent. And just, I had one client who said, I can tell when my dad is going to be violent based on the sound of his footsteps. Right. So yep. if that sort of hardship can cultivate intuition, how do we distinguish intuition from hypervigilance? I think that intuition grows out of hypervigilance. Um, it's interesting in, in the Psy research, Psy comes through much more clearly and strong when it's needed. Ooh, that's good <laughs> So we start out hypervigilant, taking everything in, every little thing. And over time, we winnow down what aspects of, you know, what stimuli are, are relevant and what stimuli aren't so that later on in life without any effort without hypervigilance we just process we take in and okay these are the relevant stimuli this is what's going to happen da, 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 da. um so so yes i think that they're they're very highly related to each other it's wow. interesting though that in that research we had two different um responses. One was the people who really needed it, right? The people whose childhood experience was dangerous and they really relied on their intuition to stay safe. The other one was people who grew up in really close, supportive families. Because if someone is validating you and sharing your experiences, you come to trust more and more and more and more that what I'm experiencing is real. What mm -hmm. I'm experiencing is, is appropriate. And so then it becomes very easy for you to hone into your intuition and say, yeah, I'm experiencing this and I'm just assuming it's valid because everything I experience is valid. That's what I've been told. That is so fascinating to consider the juxtaposition of sort of healthy attachment that fosters self-trust versus, you know, insecure, problematic attachment that separates us from trust, but 
can strengthen our connection to reality yeah. in, in the same way. So it's, I wonder if for folks who do experience a lot of trauma symptoms, if their experience just sort of kind of put horse blinders on their intuition. So they're only narrowing into those things that connect to the danger they experienced historically. Uh, I, that's an interesting point. Um, that, that was cool. Deep thoughts. <laughs> I, I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then to be able to open it up requires that validation. Right. That, like, yes, yes, you know, you know what you know. So go ahead and use it. Oh, okay. Now I know not necessarily that this is a dangerous circumstance, but this would maybe make a really good investment. Wow. I'm just thinking about what a game changer that would be for so many folks with trauma who across their lives have gotten feedback that they're too sensitive, they're overreacting, you know, to say, no, actually, you're basically psychic. (laughs) You kind of have a superpower. Right, right. That's exactly right. And in the research that I'm doing right now, that comes up over and over and over again, is we help people learn that what you think of as a, a difficulty, what you're experiencing with difficulty can be a superpower. Yeah. I guess with the right coping, with the right supportive relationships. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. I don't even know who said this, so I can't credit to them, but I was looking at popular online forums about empaths and somebody said, every empath is codependent. And I just, it's like, oh, take the knife out of my heart. I just hate that word, <laughs> codependent. Right. Yeah. right. Um, so I think that if we can get out of the mindset that this is codependency um, and you have boundary issues versus this can be a gift if you learn how to modulate this. If you learn how to put some controls on it, this can be a really cool thing for you. Well, I think that is a really useful segue into what I feel like is a, an important social and cultural aspect of intuition. If we're thinking about intuition as being this experience that particularly for, for folks with trauma or empaths, highly sensitive people, you know, all of these kind of groups that um, maybe get a bad rap that that feels like it really bumps up into some sociocultural pieces, such as, you know, just this, you know, the Cartesian dualism that has like plagued Western science from the beginning, you know, nearly. Um, so how, how do we make peace within a system that really embraces duality of mind body? Um, how do we, I guess, destigmatize intuition? Well, I think that there's a lot of potential answers to that question. My own path has been that I, I've really come to embrace different forms of panpsychism, which is to say that mind is not an epiphenomenon of neurochemical processes, or the way I like to say it, it's not a brain fart. Right. Mind exists and it's real. Now, Are mind and body connected? Yes, absolutely, they're one. It's like the head and the tail of a quarter. If I want the tail to get hot and I put heat on the head, the tail will get hot. Mm -hmm. But why would I do that? 
why wouldn't I just put the heat on the tail? Mm. So if I'm working with somebody's mind, can I manipulate their body to get their mind to do what they want? Yeah. Why? Why don't we just intervene directly with mind? Mm. Are there other ways to intervene directly with mind other than intuition? Well, certainly based on my analytic background, minds connect. Minds connect from the moment a human being has a mind. All of mental development is prefaced on the connection of minds. And so it is in that connected mind that minds grow and change and develop. And healing is growth and change and development, right? Um, Ed Tronic, who was famous for the still face experiment, mm. has talked a lot about dyadically expanded consciousness. The fact of the matter is, if two minds connect, and one of those minds is more flexible, more complex, more coherent, more cohesive, that mind's qualities are going to stretch the mind of the person that they're connected to. And so I think that most of therapeutic action, most of the mutative aspect of good, deep psychotherapy is the way that minds change when they're connected. It's the connection of those minds. And yes, in the connection of those minds, I'm going to get a lot of intuitive information about what my client is experiencing. And they're going to get information about what I'm experiencing. And I need to be okay with that. Ooh, tell me more about that. Have you had the experience of that intuition flowing the opposite way? You know, certainly we've all had clients who have the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder walk into the office and say, you're not okay today. What's wrong? What happened? And it's like, well, we don't need to make this about me. I'm not going to say, but yeah, I had an argument with my partner this morning. <laughs> so whatever. Enough about me. Let's uh, talk enough. about you. Yeah, we're not talking <laughs> about that. Um, certainly in the literature on telepathy and psychoanalysis, there's some very, very interesting examples of clients having dreams about what the analyst was doing over the weekend um, uh, th that are very, very specific, very wow. on target. Yeah. And of course, in analysis, you're seeing each other every day. And, right. and so that connection is going to be much more intimate. I'm so glad, too, that you mentioned borderline personality disorder. I have a lot of personal feelings about that diagnosis as um, being a really powerful example of misogyny and uh, just the ongoing structural problems that we have in Absolutely. psychotherapy. Um, I think there was a quote by Judith Herman. She said that borderline personality is little more than a, a clinical insult. I, yes. Well, Judith Herman I, is still brilliant. Her work is still as relevant as it could possibly be. And 
And I love the fact that she said, look, this is complex trauma. Let's stop calling it a personality disorder. It's trauma. This is the yes. way trauma grows up. Right. Um, yes. I, I think it's not an accident that most of the people who have the diagnosis identify as female. You're too emotional. You have mm -hmm. poor boundaries. Your uterus is probably wandering and that's why you're so upset that's, all the time. That's right. That's right. This is just a new name for hysteria. Exactly. Yes. So I'm, I'm curious though, that if we do kind of look at borderline personality disorder and, or at least what we generally say that presentation might look like through the lens of intuition, is there a possibility that if we are too open, that it can result in the dysregulation uh, that we see? Or do you feel like that's just really a separate thing from the intuition, more resulting of the trauma? Oh it, No, I, I think that you're onto something there. And this is coming through in the data that I'm collecting now. A lot of clients present with anxiety. With this. So I, I had the supervisor, he said, I don't want to ward off any of the incoming energy, I want to metabolize it. Right? So when we metabolize our food, we take the nutrients in the parts of it that we can use, we take, and we eliminate whatever is not useful. And I think that that is very helpful with people who are very, very open and don't know what to do with all of the incoming information is Take in the information. If we just see it as information, it doesn't have a valence. It's not negative or po positive. It's just information. We don't have to react to the information. We just know that it's information. What can I use? What's going to help me? And how do I get rid of what I can't use? So I feel like this is a question that comes up so much in supervision um, with counselors who are burnout uh, is I've just, I'm taking on all of the emotion, all of the suffering, not just of my clients, but of the world, you know, I'm just feeling the weight of it all. Uh -huh. So are there some other practical ways that we can metabolize the difficult pain, potentially difficult or painful information that we might pick up through intuition? Well, I, I certainly think that consultation is one of the best ways to say out loud what I have experienced this week. And you don't need to necessarily pay a consultant. You can have a pure consulting group that meets every month or every six weeks so that you can talk about what you've experienced. Just it, each time it gets spoken, it it reduces its mm -hmm. intensity, right? And and so you want to talk about it. I, I think that meditation is essential, and certainly movement. Um, I'm. I think that all of the movement, right? I think that the body loving movements like yoga, uh, the movements that put our minds and bodies back together, um, because therapy can be very mental work. And we need to get our minds and bodies back together. But I also think that, and in the research, rhythmic, repetitive cardio movement is a very good way to help you metabolize all of your cares. Um, so, you know, meditation, absolutely, absolutely necessary. I, I can't imagine 
being a therapist for decades and not meditating. Um, so I think all of that's really important. It's interesting because two things come to mind. One is, as you're using this concept of metabolizing, it sounds very similar to me of the Buddhist practice of Tonglen, you know, where you take in suffering and you exhale, pour out, exude uh, compassion. And as I'm, as a practicing Buddhist, that has always confounded me. I, you know, like, am I imagining it's a color? Am I supposed to feel something? Do I just think it? And then I'm trying to think it with my breath, but it takes too long. And so I'm getting out of breath. <laughs> so, you know, I think this notion that there are just a lot of different ways that we can move the energy um, is helpful. Yes, I'm a big proponent that one size never fits mm -hmm. all. Uh, different people need different things. And so find the thing. And the other piece is when you're mentioning the the rhythmic repetitive body movement, it wasn't until I started in my psych program that I had any interest in running. Like I'm, I'm a small stocky person. I am not built to run, <laughs> but the urge just became so strong as I started getting into this work. And it's, it's probably the only thing that I can reliably go to that I actually feel like I put down whatever sort of energy I've picked up. So that just super resonates with me. Yes, absolutely. I've also had people say swimming will do it. Good, strong walking. That's not just a stroll, but a walk. I think being in a forest and being near large bodies of water are both actually very helpful mm -hmm. too. There is something about water. Somewhere I read a long time ago, I think part of it's the sound. Mm. I, I read somewhere, and I don't remember where, this was a long time ago, that if you're around trees, bird song, and or water, that it's, it's going to help you cleanse. Mm -hmm. I've heard that too. I've, I feel like I've heard that as little as five minutes of exposure to a natural environment like that can help to regulate your nervous system. Yeah. I, yeah, I believe it. Same. Reflecting on your own research, particularly as you're like interviewing and talking with clinicians, some of the case studies that I was reading um, in the book, it struck me how subtle some of these experiences can be. So not necessarily a dramatic moment of clairvoyance or channeling, you know, I'm connecting with, your past life right now. And I see whatever. Um, but it could be just as simple as I shared something about myself that was contrary to my training, just as you mentioned. Um, so do you notice that intuition is really more of a subtle kind of process? Um, or, and or how big can it be in a clinical environment? It's usually quite subtle, although there are times that it can be pretty big. Uh, one of the examples in the book that was really big is that a therapist was sitting with a client who was talking about how they felt when they had um, anxiety. And the therapist got this very clear, crisp scene of this client as younger, a younger person drowning in a lake. And the therapist said, was there a time on vacation that anything happened to you? At which point the, the client said, oh my God, 
this anxiety feels exactly like the time I almost drowned. Yeah. Um, so like, I don't, I've never had anything quite that dramatic happen. Um, but wow. Do you think folks who have those kinds of experiences, do they, I'm not sure what the question is. I think this, this is really all coming from just how jealous I am of people who get to have those experiences. Like, have they always been that good? <laughs> like, have they always, maybe the question is kind of a chicken or egg thing. Do you think intuitive people are drawn to therapy or do, and, or do uh, therapists just naturally become more intuitive as a function of the work? It's a both and. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, and I could get on a soapbox about this, is that many of the therapists in the research talk about intercession experiences. How much time do you spend when you're not doing therapy, contemplating your client and or the case? And a lot of therapists whose intuition is very good spend time thinking about their clients. Mm. If you're seeing eight clients a day, you are not going to be engaging in intercession reflection. Um, and, and you're not going to be developing that intuition. I did some research previously on imagination, imaginary conversations with our clients. Because one day I was gardening and I reflected on myself and I noticed that I was having an imaginary conversation with one of my clients. And I realized I do this all the time. I have imaginary conversations with clients, friends, lots of people. So hmm, do other therapists do this too? And it turns out that these imaginary conversations, it's not uncommon that the therapist will bring part of this imaginary conversation into the therapeutic setting um, and raise some of the concerns. And in many cases, the client will react very, very closely, if not exactly the way the client, the therapist imagined. And, and so it wasn't later until I did the intuition research, I was like, Oh, what you think is imagination is actually intuition. Maybe you should stop blowing it off as just my imagination and start thinking maybe there's something to this. Mm. But getting back to intercession experiences, that takes some time. Yeah, Again, you're not going to do that if you're seeing eight clients mm -hmm. a day, five days a week. And boy, does that just kind of bring us into sort of this the capitalistic work hard culture, just the the devaluing of mental health services that requires people to see eight clients or more a day to pay the bills. Um, I mean, I can see how frustrating it would be to maybe have some little, you know, bubbles of intuition showing up, but to not realize that the very structure of your work life is impeding the growth of that. Getting into some of those big experiences, like you shared um, the image of the client in a near drowning situation, which is just so incredibly powerful. What are some of the other kind of big time experiences that either you have had? Because um, I think it's so important and, and special to hear from people directly you know, that these things really do happen, you know, it really is possible to cultivate this. I think it's really important to pay attention to your dreams. Mm, okay. And a lot of times it doesn't come off 
clear and obvious and this is it. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it takes some interpretation, right? So prior to the pandemic, um, there were a lot of people and my massage therapist had shared this with me who were having dreams about tsunamis. And, and how many people had a dream about a tsunami prior to the pandemic and just went, well, uh -oh, that was weird. And then you hear, oh my God, we all had a dream about a tsunami just before the pandemic. Wow. Um, so the answer to your question is pay attention. Just pay attention. Like whatever it is that goes on inside you that you feel like blowing off, pay attention. So that brings me to um, a question that is maybe getting into like the, the real geeky physics of it. But like, what is the relationship between intuition and time? Because I could easily be like, oh, I'm pretty sure like 1997, I had a dream about a tsunami. Like, you know, so what, what's the significance, the relationship between intuition and time? That is a really good question. And I don't want to speak with authority on the answer because I don't think any of us actually knows, but there's absolutely no doubt about the fact that in all of the psi research, time and space seem to be very different and or non-existent when you're in the world of mind. Mm -hmm. um, certainly no, we know that space is um, part of the material universe. Um, and the question becomes, how much is time part of the material universe? Now, you're going to get an awful lot of people who can't give up materialism, and they're going to talk about quantum physics and quanta and, and quantum entanglement. Um, and, and uh, okay, I, I, I don't know the answer, but in, in my experience, mind does not have the same relationship to time that the physical universe that my body has to it. So from your personal perspective, does mind then carry more of a spiritual, more of a creator, more of a higher power type quality to it? So th this is where I come kind of from the philosophical position of cosmopsychism. I mentioned earlier that I'm a panpsychist, which says that mind and body are equal um, and they're both fundamental. Neither one of them is reducible to the other. The cosmopsychist says that, you know, when we look at matter, we look at atoms, you know, we look at electrons, we look at tiny, tiny pieces, and we put those tiny pieces together to get more and more complex pieces. When we look at mind, we take the opposite perspective. There is only one mind. We are all instantiations of a single mind. And this gets very Jungian, um, very mm. much attuned to transpersonal psychologists and the neo-Jungians. And, and so if we, there's only one mind. And we're all instantiations of that mind. And, and therefore, knowing what's going on with mind over there, it's not over there. It's going on with my mind. It's all one. It's, mm. it's, we share it. I don't know if you saw this movie that came out recently, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. I didn't. 
It is so good, okay. first of okay. all, but it's a multiverse okay. uh, movie. And so it, it, that's just what came to mind was just this, how we have reduced ourselves to being essentially one dimensional and linear. Yeah. Beginning and end yeah. point. Um, and the movie is just beautiful and just a brilliant kind of way of taking one person's like t- teeny tiny problems and demonstrating that like they they really are happening everywhere all at once. You know, it's, you're not separate. Yeah. I, I think it's interesting that, you know, therapy has really tried to separate itself from mes- metaphysics. Um, and I want to say maybe Brown wrote a really good book about psychoanalysis and metaphysics. Um, the fact of the matter is, if we're working with mind, why wouldn't we be concerned with metaphysics? If mind isn't brain, then it's metaphysical. <laughs> And, and so I think I, I've been, I spoke at a conference not too long ago about how we've been getting so into scientism that we've left behind the humanities. And I think that we need, if we're going to be good therapists, we need to study philosophy and religions and literature and art um, how else are we going to know about the human condition? I, I don't think that physics alone and neuroscience is going to help us understand what makes a human being live a contented life and how can we help guide another human toward contentment? I have often felt this sort of like just kind of pokey kind of icky feeling about it shows up for me more around EMDR, but I think any of the neurologically based movements that within the last 10 years, I think have really just kind of become the end all be all of trauma treatment. I don't deny that EMDR is functional, but it just rubs up against something in me. And I wonder if that's what you're articulating is that it's, it's too reductive. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's heating up the head of the coin when we want the tail to get hot. And the long-term research on EMDR shows that it does start to deteriorate after a few years. Mm. And so they talk about the need for tune-ups. Um, and of, of course it's going to deteriorate because I think the changes that we make in mind by accessing the body, the mind goes back to finding its, its baseline right? Uh, We know that when there's brain damage, the brain will reroute. The mind goes back to finding its baseline, regardless of the structure of the brain. And so I think that when we do all of these neurochemical interventions, they work for a while, they change the mind, the body and mind are connected, but the mind finds its, its baseline. And so if we go in and really help target interventions to the mind and help a person change their mind, that will be a more enduring mutative process. Would you say that changes in mind will still manifest in the same sort of measurable ways? Like 
I'm thinking about someone with depression there. Maybe they will be more socially active and engaged. They will get out of bed. They'll sleep better. So can we, do you think there is a way for this more intuitive mind-based way of approaching therapy to, I hate to say fit, but basically to fit within our existing medical model, knowing that, you know, I've still got to send something to insurance and tell them what I did today to get this paid for. (laughs) That's difficult. And I wish I had a good answer for that. Um, I, I think that the kinds of changes that people make in this approach to therapy are emergent. You can't predict at the outset of therapy what it's going to look like. I can't say my client's going to argue less with her partner. But one day she's going to come in and she's going to say, you know, I've noticed that over the last month, every time my my partner's come and been provocative and tried to pick an argument, I just walked away. It's not that important to me anymore. It's like, oh, okay. I didn't see that coming. But yeah, yeah, you're changing. You're changing. Okay. So it sounds like the direction there is super vague treatment planning. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, what are the goals for treatment? My client is going to live a more meaningful, contented life. Some of the long, long-term studies on psychoanalytic psychotherapy show that, for instance, in terms of the symptoms of depression, 30 years after treatment has terminated, clients will say, you know, from time to time, I still feel symptoms bubbling up, but I know what to do with them. I know how to handle them. I know what they mean. And so they don't wreck my life. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're not going to probably ever get rid of the symptoms of diagnoses forever, but you can live well knowing how to manage your symptoms. So I want to shift gears a little bit, considering the cultural implications of using intuition. Maybe we'll start with thinking about how privilege intersects with intuition. It's a really broad question, but what shows up around that? A lot, a a lot. First of all, people from disenfranchised, marginalized, oppressed groups are taught your experience is wrong. Whatever it is you're experiencing, I will tell you what you're experiencing. <laughs> um, and so the ability to, to trust their intuition might be something that will be very helpful to them, kind of helping them reconnect to knowing they know what they know. I think, too, people from marginalized and oppressed groups, just like abused children, have to use their intuition, right? I, I, you, you need to know if me walking into that store right now is going to be dangerous or not. And so I think that helping them embrace that they have more than they might be consciously aware of is a really important part of that. And I think that they will be intuitive about us. They need to be intuitive about us. They need to know if we're a safe, privileged person. And so we need to humble ourselves to just to allow them to perceive more about us than we might be comfortable with 
equally privileged people. So when they come in and say, I think you, da 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 we have to be able to look and if it's if they're accurate, we need to be able to say, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That sounds so powerful to uh, I, this notion of humbling ourselves to essentially open ourselves up to more disclosure, to being more visible and allowing that to be a process of, of gaining trust, you know, building sure. trust. When I, I was working at a private child welfare agency in Chicago, and I was working primarily with women who had lost custody of their children, but had a return home permanency goal. And this was on the south side of Chicago. And the vast majority of the women were from um, highly underserved communities, um, people of color, people who were very poor, people who had been born into gangs, second generation. And my experience with, with my clients taught me a lot. And one of the things it taught me is I need to be as clear as water. I need my client to be able to see right through me. I don't ever want to say anything that will surprise them or take them off guard. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be a mystery to them at all because if there's any part of me that's mysterious, I could be dangerous. There is no mm -hmm. reason they shouldn't assume I'm dangerous unless they can see right through me. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just, I feel like that is the embodiment of what I've, I at least feel to be missing in counselor education is rather than being closed off and not present as a person, you know, one of the best ways that we can connect across differences in privilege is, is to be fully visible yeah. and to honor that. I mean, it's just such a, a shift in the narrative, right? To say, no, I owe it to you. You know, you don't owe me anything. You don't owe me your trust. I owe it to you to give you as much space as you need to cultivate that. Absolutely. I'm curious if there's any particular new directions that you're going. You've mentioned some of those, but yeah, just curious on any other wrap up kind of thoughts or. If people are interested in participating in my research because they're therapists who work with clients who have had anomalous experiences, you can contact me at um, findingourminds at gmail.com. It was an interesting conversation for me. I hope other people find it as interesting. It has just been so cool to talk about these things that I think can often feel off limits. So I just so appreciate that you're opening up this world, you know, for us to deeply explore. It's just so meaningful. Yeah, I decided I was going to let my woo-woo flag fly. Whatever. <laughs> I totally embrace that. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. That is our show for today, folks. I am curious, though. I'm guessing some of you have had some pretty cool experiences of your own or your client's intuition showing up in session. So follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast and share your stories. Until next time, this is Dr. Candace Creaseman-Mowry signing off. 
Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.